But if we could, this evening, with the Lord's help and the Lord's enabling, if we could turn to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation and chapter 3. We're continuing our study of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And this evening, we're looking at the church in Philadelphia. So Revelation chapter 3, it's page 1237, if you're using the Pew Bible. And we're reading at verse 7. Revelation chapter 3 at verse 7, where Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, it's safe to say that there's nothing so important in life as faithfulness. As we said, all of our psalms this evening, they have focused upon the theme of the Lord's faithfulness towards us. We opened uh, by singing Psalm 89. And Psalm 89, it mentions the Lord's faithfulness 88 times, not 88, 8 times in that psalm. Because David knew that the Lord was faithful to his covenant promise. And the Lord was faithful to his covenant people. That's why he could open the psalm and say, God's mercies. I will ever sing, and with my mouth I shall thy faithfulness make to be known to generations all. So the Psalms, they're full of reminders of the Lord's faithfulness. And faithfulness is important because faithfulness is the basis of trust. Faithfulness is foundational to trust. We can trust the Lord because he is faithful. And the Bible reminds us that even when we are unfaithful... He remains faithful. And you know as Christians. As those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We are to be faithful. We're to be faithful to the Lord. We're to be faithful to our spouse. We're to be faithful to our children. We're to be faithful in our Christian witness. We're to be faithful in our church attendance. We're to be faithful in our, to our own congregation. As Christians. As those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We're to be faithful. Because when we're faithful, Jesus commends us for our faithfulness. 
He doesn't commend us for our success. But Jesus will say to us at the end of the day, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And you know, that's what the church in Philadelphia received from Jesus. They were commended by Jesus for their faithfulness. And they received from Jesus the well done, good and faithful servant. But what's interesting is that the church in Philadelphia... It has often been described as a rose between two thorns. Because in Revelation chapter 3, you have Sardis at the beginning of the chapter, which is the dead church. And then you have the church in Laodicea at the end of the chapter, which is the lukewarm church. But the rose between these two churches, the dead and the lukewarm church, these thorns, the rose between these two thorns is the church in Philadelphia. A church that was faithful to Jesus despite the opposition it experienced. And their faithfulness to Jesus is what brought blessing and encouragement. Now as we said before during our study of this, these seven letters to the churches. These letters to the seven churches in Revelation were to view them as the results of a spiritual health check. But the reason Jesus is giving the results of this spiritual health check is because Jesus wants his church to be faithful and obedient in a world that is hostile to the gospel. And it seems that the church in Philadelphia got that message loud and clear. But as we've considered all these letters so far, this is the sixth of seven letters, we've seen that they all use familiar phrases and they all follow a, a similar structure. Most of them have the structure of a word of commendation, then a word of condemnation, and then a word of consolation. But unlike the thorns of Sardis and Laodicea, Jesus didn't have a word of condemnation for the rose of Philadelphia. Because Philadelphia was the faithful church. And Jesus, he only had a word of commendation and a word of consolation. For the church in Philadelphia. And so there are headings this evening. Just two headings. A word of commendation. And a word of consolation. So first of all a word of commendation. For Jesus says in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. The words of the holy one. The true one. Who has the key of David. Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. The church in Philadelphia, which is now known as Alishir in western Turkey, it's about 30 miles southeast of the city of Sardis. But what's interesting about the church in Philadelphia, or even the city of Philadelphia, the city was founded in the year 189 BC. And the city was given its name by its founder, this king called Eumenes. He was King Eumenes II. And he was the king of Pergamos, a place that we looked at a few weeks ago. He was king in the city of Pergamos. And King Eumenes, he named the city of Philadelphia in honor of his brother. His brother was called Attalus. And he named this city, Philadelphia, in honor of his brother because Attalus, he had shown such loyalty and such love towards his brother. And because of his loyalty and his love, they used to nickname his brother Philadelphus. That's what they called him. That was his nickname. And so King Eumenes, he named Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, he named it 
after the nickname of his brother. A name which literally means brotherly love. But you know, this city of brotherly love, it certainly lived up to its name. Because it had a church in it. And although it wasn't a large church with an enviable membership and and it wasn't really active in its community like the dead church of Sardis that we saw last week, even though it wasn't like that, the church in Philadelphia was a faithful church. And it was a faithful church that displayed a lot of love because the church members, they loved one another. They loved the Christ in one another. They loved the work of the gospel that they were part of. And they consistently showed a spirit of love in their Christian witness. The church in Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, you know, it certainly lived up to the commandment of Jesus. You remember that Jesus, he gave that new commandment in John chapter 13, where Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, You also are to love one another. By this all people will know. That you are my disciples. If you have love towards one another. And so the church in Philadelphia. It lived up to its name. But you know according to Jesus' command. It's a name that should define every church. Including our church. Every church should be the church of Philadelphia. Every church should be known as the church of brotherly love. Of course, the church in Philadelphia, it wasn't perfect. There's no perfect church. But you know, even with all her imperfections and all her weaknesses and all her failures, the church in Philadelphia, it pleased Jesus. And Jesus commends and he praises the church in Philadelphia for their steadfast love and their faithfulness. He commends them for their steadfast love and their faithfulness. And you know, that's how often, That's how Jesus is often portrayed to us in the Bible. Jesus is often known to us as one who was steadfast in his love and his faithfulness. He was known by his steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus dealt with sinners according to his steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus healed the sick. He cleansed lepers. He gave the blind their sight. He caused the deaf to hear. He raised the dead to life. And he did it all according to... To his steadfast love and faithfulness. And so Jesus he commends the church in Philadelphia. Why? Because they are Christ like in their character. They are Christ like. They are showing steadfast love and faithfulness. And without doubt the church in Philadelphia. It's an example of what a church ought to be. The fruit of the spirit abounded in the church in Philadelphia. As Jesus worked in them through his, through his word. But as Jesus now writes to this church. He reminds the pastor, the angel of the church. He reminds him of who he is. He says in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. The words of the holy one. The true one. Who has the key of David. Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. This self-description of Jesus, it's one of the most comforting of all his letters. Because Jesus reminds the church in Philadelphia, he reminds them first of all that he is holy. He is set apart. He's distinct. He's pure. He's without spot or blemish. Jesus, he says, I am without sin. But more than that, 
the Holy One. It's a title that was often attributed to the Messiah in the Old Testament. And in his holiness, the Messiah, he was anointed in order to redeem his church by his blood and sanctify her, make her holy so that she will be holy and without blemish in the sight of God the Father. And that's what Jesus is doing and that's what Jesus will do for his church. He promises at the end, at the last day, to present her faultless before his glory with exceeding joy. And so he describes himself as the Holy One. But then he describes himself as the True One. Jesus is truth personified. And he confirmed this to his disciples in the upper room in John 14. He said to them, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the true one because he was faithful and obedient to the Father's plan of salvation. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He kept truth. He upheld the covenant promise that was made with Abraham and all the generations after him. And he kept that promise from generation to generation to generation. Jesus was true to his promise. He was true to his love. He was true to his loyalty. He was true to his word. Jesus is the true one. And he will always remain true because he's faithful. And that's why we can trust him. That's why we can trust all his promises. That's why we can trust his word. Other people, they will let us down. They will disappoint us. But you know, this Jesus, he sticks closer than a brother. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And you know, this would have been such an encouragement to the church in Philadelphia. And it should be an an encouragement to us that Jesus is who he says he is. He's a true one. And all his promises to us, they are yea and amen in Christ. And you know, thinking about it here, as someone who's sitting here unconverted tonight, and there are quite a few of you, you know that Jesus promises to you that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just That he will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do you know that Jesus promises to you. That whosoever comes to me. I will in no wise cast out. Do you know that Jesus promises to you in his word. That if you believe in your heart. And confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then you will be saved. My friend do you know that Jesus promises to you. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks it will be opened. These are all the promises that Jesus gives to you in his word. And because he's faithful you can trust every single one of these promises. You can trust them all. You can have no doubt about them. That's why you shouldn't be unconverted. That's why you should be a Christian. If you can trust what Jesus is saying, you should commit your life to him. But you know, Jesus also says here that he has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And what's interesting about that statement 
is that it's a messianic statement about Jesus. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 22. Where Isaiah, he prophesied nearly 800 years before Jesus was even born. And Isaiah said that the Lord will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And what Jesus is reminding the church in Philadelphia is that as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the anointed one, as the savior of sinners, he has absolute power and authority over the entry into the kingdom of heaven. As the anointed king and head of his church, Jesus has absolute authority over the door into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has the key. In fact, Jesus is the key. Because as we said, Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Also, my friend, Jesus has absolute authority over the door into the kingdom of heaven. He has absolute authority. He has the keys. The key of David. He is the one who opens and no one will shut. And he's the one who shuts and no one will open. But you know, we read earlier in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 16, and we read interesting words that Jesus said there. It was a momentous occasion in chapter 16, when Jesus asked the disciples, they're walking to Caesarea Philippi, they're just the 12 of them together, including Jesus. And Jesus says to them, who do people say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, one A few of them say you're one of the prophets. But then Jesus, he makes the question a bit more personal, a bit more direct. And he says, but who do you say that I am? What's your opinion on me? And it was then that Peter, we saw that he stepped forward and he confessed the confession of the Christian. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus, he responded to Peter's confession by saying really interesting words. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Very similar to what Jesus is talking about here. Now, but what we have to be clear upon is that Peter was not the rock upon which Jesus was going to build his church. Jesus wasn't giving Peter the authority to forgive sin and to allow people into heaven. As you know, Roman Catholicism uses these words of Matthew 16. They use them as their proof text for the existence of the papacy. And they say that Peter was the first pope. And the foundation, he is the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, they say that Peter is literally under the the Vatican in Rome. He's buried there. He is the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church. And because Jesus said that he gave to Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Roman Catholicism, they came to the conclusion that the Pope has the same authority and the same power as Jesus. 
The Pope has the authority and the power to absolve people of their sin and admit them into heaven. But of course, such an interpretation, it's not only a misinterpretation, it completely undermines what Jesus came to do on the cross. Because by claiming that Peter was the first Pope, and by saying that Peter had the ability to forgive sins and send people into heaven, there's no other word for it but blasphemy. Because it's putting someone in the place of Jesus Christ. And that's essentially what the Pope is. He's the vicar of Christ. He stands in the place of Christ. But no one can ever stand in the place of Christ. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so what we have to understand is that when Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. The rock wasn't Peter. The rock was Peter's confession. The rock was the confession of the Christian. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it would be upon that rock that the church of Jesus Christ would be built. It would be upon the confession of the Christian that the church of Jesus Christ would be built. And down throughout the centuries, the church of Jesus Christ, it has been built and it has been extended only because of the confession of the Christian. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus was saying to Peter, so long as that rock is proclaimed, and so long as that rock is confessed, not even the gates of hell itself will prevail against the church. And my friend, it's through the confession of the Christian that Jesus opens the door that no man can shut. It's not through the apostle Peter or the Pope or a priest or human wisdom or good living or mob rule or the power of the state. It's not through any of these things that the door to the kingdom of heaven swings open. But only through our confession that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. And you know, as someone who is unconverted in here tonight, far better for you to stand on this rock and confess the name of Christ and enter through the door into the kingdom of heaven. Far better for you than to be overcome by the powers of hell. Far better for you. Because what Jesus is reminding you tonight is that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And you know, having given to the church in Philadelphia this encouraging self-description of Jesus, do you know, I love what Jesus then says to them in verses 8 and 9. And notice how many times Jesus says the word behold in verses 8 and 9. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus gives the church in Philadelphia such encouraging words. But he emphasizes these words to them. And he stresses these words to them using this little word, behold. 
And what Jesus is saying to this church in Philadelphia, he's saying, behold, I have set before you an open door. You have access into the kingdom of heaven and no one can stop you. Not even those of the synagogue of Satan. Because even though you are small, even though you are weak, you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Despite your opposition, despite your persecution, you have continued to confess me as your Lord and Savior. But more than that, Jesus assures the church in Philadelphia that he will make those of the synagogue of Satan who are liars, Jesus says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. And the point that Jesus is trying to make here is that the door into the kingdom of heaven, it's open to the church of Philadelphia. And it's open because of their faithful confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. But those who are of the synagogue of Satan, he says, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus will shut the door on them. And when he shuts the door, Jesus affirms, no one will open it. And that's because the synagogue of Satan, as we read there, they claimed to be converted Jews. They claimed to be Jewish Christians. They, but the sad thing was they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They rejected Jesus as the Holy One, the True One, the One who is the key of David. They didn't have the confession of the Christian. They didn't confess Jesus Christ to be the living and true God. Therefore, they served Satan rather than Jesus Christ. And you know, there were many synagogues of Satan in, in the first century. There was a synagogue of Satan in Philadelphia. There was one in Smyrna. There was one in Jerusalem, one in Antioch. There was one in Lystra, Iconium, and Thessalonica. There were many synagogues of Satan in the first century. But there are also many synagogues of Satan in the 21st century. Because there are many churches, even in our own nation. And they claim to be a Christian church. But sadly, they reject this Jesus, who describes himself as the Holy One, the True One, and the One who has the key of David. And they certainly don't have the confession of the Christian, the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And like the synagogues of Satan in the first century, Jesus, he condemns the synagogues of Satan in the 21st century. And he says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus will only commend a church. That is known by its steadfast love and faithfulness. Like the church in Philadelphia. So Jesus gives a word of commendation. But then he gives to them a word of consolation. A word of consolation. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem. Which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One commentator of these verses says these are key biblical verses to help us understand the time of the rapture. Now the word rapture doesn't occur in the Bible. It comes from a Latin word meaning a carrying off or a snatching away. But even though the word rapture doesn't occur in the Bible, it's a biblical concept. Because the rapture, it's been described as a miraculous transportation of living Christians who are taken to heaven at the return of Jesus Christ. And of course, like many things, there's a lot of misinformation about the event of the rapture. There's lots of things like, they call it the pre-tribulation rapture. You can look that up for yourself. But when Paul wrote his letter to the Thessalonians, a city that had a synagogue of Satan, Paul encouraged the Thessalonians to remind them, to to remind them that they were to be faithful by remembering what what would happen when Jesus returns. And Paul says at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4, beautiful verses, he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven With a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now Paul makes clear that at the return of Jesus, it will not be something secret. It will be visible. People will not just disappear. Everything will be seen. And the return of Jesus will be a bodily return. And it will be a a triumphant return. He will not come in lowliness and meekness. Like he did at his first coming. Because at his second coming. Jesus will come in power and in glory. And you know. It's interesting. I was was reading uh, The Work of Christ. By R.C. Sproul. It's his book. And he say, he's talking about the rapture. And he says there's a view that's widespread in the church today. Which claims that Jesus will come back to rapture the church out of the world. Then the great tribulation will take place. And after that Jesus will come again. So they're saying that Jesus will come. He'll take his people away. And then he'll come again and judge the world. <clears throat> but that view says Sproul. It seriously misunderstands what Paul described To the Thessalonians. Because Paul said that when Jesus returns. As the glorious king. To judge the world. He says every every Christian. Who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. He says they will be raptured. They will be snatched away. They will be taken up. And they will be caught up. Together with the Lord in the air. They will not stay up there. But they will participate. In the exaltation of Jesus. And the final judgment. And you know, Paul, he wanted to encourage the Thessalonians by this. He said to them at the end of that chapter in 1 Thessalonians 4, he said, encourage one another with these words. Paul's purpose in writing about the rapture was to encourage the Thessalonians to remain faithful and to stand firm. And you know, that's what Jesus is doing here. 
He's encouraging the church in Philadelphia. This small and fragile congregation of faithful Christians. Jesus is encouraging them to remain faithful and stand firm. And he says this so that when he comes again, they will receive the well done and the crown. And that's what Jesus promises. He promises those who remain faithful to the end by holding on to the confession of the Christian and living it out till the end of their days. Jesus promises the well done, good and faithful servant enter in to the joy of the Lord. You know, that's why Jesus says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. My Christian friend, Jesus, who is the Holy One, the True One, who is the Key of David, Jesus is encouraging us tonight to be like the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of Brotherly Love, to love one another, to love the Christ in one another, to love the community that surrounds us. He's encouraging us to remain faithful and to stand firm. So that when he comes again, we will receive the well done and the crown. But you know, the other side of this is that Jesus is also speaking to the unconverted. Because my unconverted friend, this Jesus, he's the same Jesus who is the holy one, the true one, and the one who has the keys of David. Do you know that he says to you in the gospel... I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And as you know by now, the only way to enter through this door into the kingdom of heaven, the only way to be saved, the only way to be born again, the only way to, to have eternal life is by the confession of the Christian. My friend, Jesus is asking you tonight, as he asked the disciples on that road to Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? What's your opinion of me? And you know if you want to enter through the door. Into the kingdom of heaven. All you have to do is come to Jesus like Peter. And every other Christian after him. You must confess. You alone are the Christ. The son of the living God. Because the promise of the Bible, a Bible that is trustworthy, a Bible that is faithful, the promise of the Bible, if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will, you will be saved. So friends, let us, enable, let us be enabled and encouraged to be like the church in Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Now let us pray. Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we realize that we are often so unfaithful. We are those who faint and fail. We are those, Lord, who drift and drag. But we thank Thee that we come to a King, a King who is always faithful, a King who never changes, a King who is always good towards us, whose mercy is is never ceasing and thy love is always flowing help us then we pray to come
and to keep coming, to emulate this Saviour who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank thee, O Lord, that thou art the one who has opened this door, a door of salvation that no man can shut. Help us, Lord, to hear the word behind us saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. O Lord, speak to us by thy spirit, we plead, and awaken us and cause us to seek the Lord while he's to be found and to call upon him while he is near. Bless us in the week that lies ahead, a week, Lord, as we always know, is unknown to us, but it is known to thee. And for that reason, we cast every care into thine hand, knowing that thou art one who cares for us. Take away our iniquity. Receive us graciously, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We shall conclude our service this evening by singing to God's praise in Psalm 36. Psalm 36 and verse 5. Thy mercy, Lord, is in the heavens. Thy truth doth reach the clouds. Thy justice is like mountains great. Thy judgments deep as floods. Lord, thou preservest man and beast. How precious is thy grace. Their foreign shadow of thy wings. Their sons, their trust shall place. And we'll sing on down to the verse mark 9 of Psalm 36. To God's praise.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.